welcome to the April edition of Expanding Horizons. As always, I'm your host, LB, and joining me is CT. Hey there. So today's episode is special for a variety of reasons. First off, this is lucky number 13 total podcast for us. Mm. Secondly, it's the first podcast we've recorded uh, after getting added to various platforms, including Podbean, Apple, Stitcher, and Google. Uh, and lastly, because this episode is all about Takeo Takahashi, who happened to direct both series that we're going to be talking about today, Yoshiga no Sora and Maoyu. If you don't recognize the name from either of those two titles, you might have also heard of a tiny and unknown other title that he directed, Spice and Wolf. As always, this is your warning that there will be spoilers thrown in along the way, especially for Yosuga, uh, and there's a lot to unpack, so let's go ahead, let's jump right into things. We're going to start with Yosuga Nosora. Uh, a bit of background on this one. Uh, this is a series that was released in 2010. It's an anthology romance drama based on a visual novel basically every three to four episodes the focus shifts to a different heroine until we ultimately get to the quote-unquote true ending which is a twincest ending between the two main characters haruka and sora so before we start getting into like opinions and everything i would like to know was this series chosen for me purely because it shared the same director, or was there something else to this? Uh, well, I'll, I'll have a, a couple confessions. This, I, I will normally use your suggestions to as fodder for mine, so at the time, uh, I realized it had been a while since I'd suggested anything. We were, you know, stuck in the middle of weird pandemic mode and and other things so i think it had gone a couple weeks and i hadn't even made a suggestion so i was just looking through uh yours uh mario had been on my i was always interested looking at the title so i would i would scan by it on crunchyroll and be like why haven't i watched this yet and then i just still wouldn't watch it so uh, I took that and I looked at a few things and I just, you know, clicked on the director, clicked on the writer. Uh, in this case, I suggested Log Horizon and I saw that uh, one of the titles, you know, noticing that he'd done Spice and Wolf as well. The director had Yosuga Nosora was on there and I didn't really make enough connections because I just kind of looked at it and I'm like, uh, oh, it, it's one of those things. Sora being, you know, Sky gets used all over the place uh, in the in a ton of different titles and and other things. And I just kind of looked at the cover and it's like, oh, there there are cute girls. One of them looks exactly like a character from Saki. And I was just looking at your chart, not even thinking about was this something that I had watched before? Because when when it came down to it, you rejected Log Horizon, and I'd said, uh, okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll think of two better suggestions, as in I would give it more thought. Uh, but you'd already gone into it. I'm like, okay, I guess we're doing this one. And then I realized I hadn't watched it either. So <laughs> this, this was expanding both of our horizons. And then once I realized, uh, you know, once I was watching it from the beginning, I'm getting particular vibes. And by the end of episode one, I'm like, oh, my God, 
<laughs> sort of a what have I gotten myself into kind of situation. So this was def this particular one was definitely accidental. I just saw that you had bailed on Log Horizon, but you had only stopped watching this one, and I think my brain crosswired it with something else for a while until you're already watching it, and then I'm like, okay, let let's go for it, and uh, and then at that point I I see the the rest of it, and you know when when in episode one you have you know basically the male character who is apparently exuding pheromones out of every orifice and everyone who even either they were already in love with him as kids or stared askance at him and fell in love with him immediately and there were some high quality boob scenes and other stuff we'll 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 get back around but (laughs) episode one set up the utter lunacy of this thing and i'm like okay Let's see where it goes. I I haven't, you know, in a while watched a an actual, like, true harem, gay romance through for a while. And I was interested in seeing what kind of presentation it was going to go with, uh, because I thought it was going to go one particular way. And then pretty immediately... It, it starts throwing that off, and I'm like, well, I have no idea what it's going to do. All right, so, yeah, I was just curious about that, because, you know, I didn't actually look into the staff until I was at least halfway through the series, because I was trying to figure out what the connection was and why we were watching this. <laughs> I'm not saying that the series was bad we'll get into this more in a little bit but it did seem like such an off the wall choice that it yeah so i was really wondering about that i had i went around back to it and i'm like what actually was i thinking of i think honestly it just bore some title similarities to enough things that I that I was assuming it was something else and it was one of the more what was it from from that director it was just one of the more uh, uh, familiar titles to my brain even though it wasn't the right one I don't know if you watched uh, Raka uh, Braves yeah, of the Six Flowers so that was another one that could have been there but obviously if you watched it already that was the other one that I was mainly familiar with, and uh, he recently did Citrus. We'll get back to you know the kind of stuff that he's done later on, but uh, but yeah, it, it just felt like it was a familiar thing, and I was doing a director connection and a writer connection, and you immediately pan the writer connection, and then I was gonna come up with a better thought process, but uh, but we we locked in anyway, and uh, and so I started watching, and the only unfortunate thing about it well not the only unfortunate thing but uh you had promised to uh uh i I started watching this first because you you promised to make two crunchy roll suggestions or at least not to make funimation suggestions (laughs) and then then discovered that mao you had crunchy roll had literally lost the license for it since the time you suggested it to the time I started watching it 
So I had a page up which had all of it there. And then when I refreshed the page, it all disappeared. And I'm like, ah, oh, crap. Well, this one is on Crunchyroll. So I watched Yasuga first. So, all right. Couple of little confessions that I need to make along the way. Uh, the first one is. I actually remember telling you, yeah, I'm starting in on this one. And then I started the first episode, got about five minutes in, turned it off, and didn't go back to it again for another few days. <laughs> okay. It was, Like I said before, it wasn't that the series was bad or that it started badly. It was just, after so many years of this... It's really difficult to go into a series like this without some kind of preconceived notion of what it's going to be. And I had this little voice in the back of my brain telling me as soon as I started this is like, yeah, you know how this is going to go. You know how this is going to go. Why are we doing this? I thought so, I knew how this was going to go. But and, and, and it actually, all changed in the course of the episode one when you you had watched a few of them before, though. So was there any difference between watching five minutes of episode one and all of episode one when you recently rewatched it? Yeah, when I actually started to get into it, though, there were a few things about this series that I did not know. The first one was that I did not know that this was an anthology series. I thought that it was just going to focus on one heroine throughout the entire run of the right, series. Right, you, you'd get one arc for it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking was going to happen. But then when I got to like episode four or five and it shifted to a new heroine, I actually had to look it up on Wikipedia to make sure that I didn't miss <laughs> something. Wait, what? <laughs> that's true. What Once the first arc ends, I'm like, wait, wait a minute. How, how do they continue this? And the, the next episode is, oh, okay. We, How many routes are we going to get? So uh, that was... That was definitely unexpected uh, for me as well. So yeah, so that part took me, got me off guard. So, but I kept watching. I really thought that, like I said, it was going to focus on one girl, but it focused on four instead, which is fine. The other thing that really caught me off guard is that I was not expecting for the first three arcs to be not quite as compelling as the final one, which was Sora's arc. I have to admit that by the time they got to Sora's story arc at the end, I was ready for it. I was just like, the first three arcs were okay, but they were kind of boring. So I was much more invested in Sora's story arc and seeing where they were going to go with that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they certainly lean in and it's, it's weirdly, weirdly compelling compared to the rest of it. And you're right. It's, it's sort of in direct contrast to watching the course of episode one. You're like, Oh, okay. Well, I'm pretty sure I know what kind of, anime this is going to be and we have twins here and they've had a you know tragic orphans now and they're moving back to their uh, grandparents countryside where they spent time as kids you know like okay i know where it's pro probably going to eventually go but then you 
you get a flashback scene and it's like, oh, apparently they were already making out when they were eight. Okay. Because uh, <laughs> you have well before they they move or they lose their parents, you get a flashback there. So you're already into that. I'm like, I guess this is going to go some deep, dark, psychological crazy things how how school days are we gonna go with this uh with this shit right here but then the presentation of episode one is kind of so formulaic erogay like lunatic setup Uh, he starts coming home they meet akira in the candy store or in a shop and she seems to imply that she knew him from years ago, Kazuha and her maid pass by him on the road, and the maid uh, who will appear in every omake at the end of the episode is immediately hot for him. Uh, he's almost run over by a bike by the class rep, and she falls in love with him immediately, and it comes back to the house they're going to stay at, and there's a next-door neighbor, and I'm like, oh, there's the childhood friend, and she already you know, has a crush on him. Literally every female character that they write across had either a relationship, or you see the seed of the relationship. It's like, oh, okay, all of the routes are literally shouting themselves from the rooftops in episode one, which contradicted me thinking it's going to be like a dark psychological thing because it was just formulaic and weird. And then you get the one ending and it's kind of pleasant and other stuff. And then you get this just crazy face Omake at the end and the second ending, which is just goofy as all get out and the whole cast is being playful with each other and other stuff. So at the at the very end of episode one, I had just thrown my hands up and I'm like, well, whatever show, <laughs> what you gonna do? I, I immediately gave up on thinking anything about the show and treating it seriously in any way because I'm like, okay, I guess they're gonna do stuff and I'll find out what it is. But uh, I no longer was thinking what I thought at the beginning of the episode by the end of episode one. So, but not not in the not in the usual way. Usually, you're presented with a situation, and by the end of episode one, like the craziness has unfolded in a in a way. It's either really uh, it's substantially more weird than you thought, or suddenly like the hammer drops and uh, it's way more serious than you thought it was going to be. And you're like, oh man, shit, hit the fan right away. This is going to be a great ride. I was literally thinking of a, like a a pretty dark take on this, especially considering you have, you know, twin (laughs) cest literally at the core of it with the title character. And then by the end, I'm like, okay, I guess not. What, whatever. It, It just kind of, brushed everything off and then was like okay we're just gonna we're gonna have fun and you already saw now is ample plumage uh in the bath by the end like uh i you remember in maharomatic one of my first comments was like wow this has substantially more boobs in it than i thought it was <laughs> gonna go in and this one was like yeah we're, we're gonna nude scene all over the place and it was like, all right. Yeah, well, the thing is with this series is that by the 
end of the first one or two episodes, especially considering the Omaki at the end of the first episode, I had a pretty solid idea of how far they were going to go with this one. I wasn't entirely sure if they were going to go all the way in the primary story, but the fact that they had the maid masturbating in the omake by the end of the first episode gave me a pretty good idea of how far they were willing to go you know that gave me an idea right there uh i wasn't the fact that they focused on different heroines at first though is actually kind of confused me a bit because i had remembered that this was a twin cess series. I, re- I had remembered that much because I had sampled this back in 2010 and then I dropped it at episode three for okay. some reason That's that I don't you. remember. So I remembered that much. Uh, but the thing is, is that when they ended that first story arc at episode four or five, I was a little confused. Like I said before, I thought that it was going to focus on one girl and it didn't. Um, Lost my train of thought there for a second. <laughs> this uh, anime will do that to you. But yeah. yeah, that because I didn't think they were doing arcs with it when he got to the uh, the end of episode four and you basically have resolution with a Kazaha arc, I'm like, well, how does he move to someone else after this? They seem very much you know, devoted to each other and he's not thinking about stuff. So right. Without knowing that they were just going to rewind, they basically rewind episode two. And then the next two were about, uh, Akira. So interestingly, the first two girls are the ones with sort of a, with a combined history. So you get to see it from one side and then the other. And I actually thought we were going to get a different, uh, incest from, cause it seemed very much like, uh, Kazaha was, extremely devoted to Akira in the beginning. And she was for different presented reasons, but it seemed like she wanted to pair off. And and there is even a scene at one point, I thought, with uh, Akira kissing Kazuha in in Kazuha's arc. I believe so. So it seemed like that was in there as well. And it's still like they they end up, of course, with big dick energy Haruka. Uh, <laughs> both of them by the end of their arcs. I'm like, oh man, there's something else in there. What what was going on there? I don't know if the game uh, played that out more. If you got, like, say you were going down a different route and then the two of them had something else, but the anime didn't have time to present it because it had to, you know, dedicate time. Do you know how many uh, arcs there were in the original game? No, I don't. I could probably look it up real fast, but no, off the top of my head, I don't know. Really sure. I haven't heard of too many. I did look up Sphere to see some of their stuff and look at their website, and uh, they they show the there's a sequel to uh, Yasuga Nasora, mm-hmm. at least a uh, an an expansion set to it. Yeah, and some other stuff that I've never heard of, like uh, what is it, berries and. Uh, Imoto uh, no Katachi, which, uh, you know, they, if you're mentioning more Little Sister stuff in here, and uh, they they definitely do the same thing over and over again. <laughs> I'm guessing this was the one of the more serious of theirs, maybe? I'm, I'm not sure. It, it's the only one that I've uh, 
heard of or, or seems to have gotten an anime of any particular uh, renown, as it were. So. so, what did you think of the series being an anthology with four different arcs? For me, I actually found it a little frustrating. I felt like not a single one of the arcs had enough time to really breathe and flesh out the girls. It felt like this was one of the first series that I've watched in a long time where I can't choose a best girl because I didn't feel like I knew any of them well enough to pick one. Well, the best girl is definitely uh, Yahiro, who is the the candy store owner, uh, Uh Akira's guardian. And the reason she is best girl is because she did not have a scene where she immediately fell for Haruka or seemed like she could be an option for uh, also, uh, of course, way older than him, but that didn't stop uh, Motoka, the the maid, at all. So (laughs) best girl is her for being out of the sphere of influence. (laughs) (laughs) Amusingly, I... I think as far as one of them goes, this might be one of the the few ones that's a, a very distinct yeah anthology, as you're talking about. Not not one like, you know, The World God Only Knows, which is going through arcs that are dedicated to girls, but it's a running storyline. It's not rewinding time. It's not changing events. So this is doing exactly... It's presenting the uh, Eroge pretty much exactly as it would be if you were playing down each of the multiple paths. I assume yeah. it uh, sped through a few things and it wanted to get uh, to the end to devote more... Uh, episodes, or at least one more episode to Sora specifically, and that being the, uh, you know, the the most intriguing route, as it were. So I can see how some of them would come across as unsatisfying, but like I said, the end of episode one with the Omake, with that second ending, it flipped a switch in my brain that made it so I just didn't care. So I'm like, well, it's it's a big party now. So let's just have uh, you know a bunch of big parties. And once once it was distinctly going in those directions, I'm like, okay, that's fine. Hey, why not? So uh, I did. I was not turned off by it because you got to see the things you you got to see the, you know a much more specific uh, adaptation of you know, an eroge into anime form that's keeping most of the trappings of what you get from the eroge rather than trying to pick a path where you either sit in a pool of will they, won't they, uh, you know, wacky little things until sort of the very end starts to uh, pick one best girl and you let that arc play out to completion. They pick their best girl uh, or a weird 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 pile like uh occasionally something like school days would be uh again that's that's what i was kind of thinking going in to the middle of episode one was that we were gonna get something uh something very dark and psychological and instead it just turned kind of goofy so uh (laughs) i would i was fine with that at that point i'm like sure throw in boobs sure throw (laughs) 
<laughs> Throw in whatever. You can do me no more harm, show. You, you have revealed your character and whatever. So uh, in this case, I enjoyed it enough because you didn't get stuck on just Kazuha's arc from her perspective. You didn't have three or four episodes of establishment only and then riding one person out until the end and maybe a dramatic twist uh, with his sister at the end, which is kind of what I expected. Uh, in this case, they they played out the game, and I'm like, all right, why not? So, a couple of little things. Uh, the first is that I have to admit, you brought up the omake, which were the little three-minute shorts that they included at the end of every episode. I have to admit that by episode seven, I was skipping over those because I just thought they were so dumb. Well, they were so dumb. <laughs> but that's, that was their purpose. The more, the more they could outdub each other, the better they got. You... Yeah, I just I just could not after, you know, 22, 23 minutes of, you know, rather kind of focused, serious storytelling, just suddenly throwing in something that was so over the top and so far the opposite direction, it just did not work for me. I I enjoyed those a weirdly lot, be, uh, especially because ending two was my favorite of of all of the. If you're gonna go with the opening of the first ending, ending two was just kind of goofy and jovial, like I said before, and all of the scenes were the characters having fun uh, with each other, and it was just kind of a big weird uh, party. So it it was a good old time, and. Uh, uh, you didn't get anything with uh, Motika in the uh, in the show itself, particularly. She had her one setup right there in the beginning, and then I think she shows up in a scene or two. But really, it's just the Omake was her turn to do anything. And I assume in the in the game that she's you know a full on route that you can uh, you know nail this drunk dizzy bitch all you want. <laughs> <laughs> but you know she's stealing into the school like a ninja to deliver something for her mistress that then it's all about trying to hook up with haruka which she does many times then uh her uh, of probably of the ones that you skipped were i assume that they were actually doing something with her arc it's just in compressed in comedic form uh, uh, in those things because her old boyfriend comes back and she goes back to, you know, the town to confront the guy and then Haruka comes after her and confesses to her and they get to live the happily ever after life at the end. And I'm like, sure. <laughs> Again, you get, you got a, basically a, a fifth mini arc within the uh, comedic omakes that were at the end of it. And, uh, and yeah, it, uh, it kept me separated from caring a whole lot about the show, which I think saved the show quite a bit more <laughs> than it would have otherwise for me. So, uh, what, 
before we get into mine, I'm curious, what is your experience with series of this vein? Uh, have you watched a lot of series that feature like incest or twincest before? Or was this kind of a new thing for you? Uh, explicit? I mean, uh, unless you're going to call uh, Oremo explicit and it really isn't, you you get that at the end. And of course, people uh, attack sword art for the uh, uh, Kuzaha. God, I'm forgetting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know stuff. what you're talking about. Um, <clears throat> not, not particularly. I mean, I know it's out there. I've, if if you chomp around in Dojin land, of course, it's all over the place. So, uh, yeah. but in in an anime that I'm going to watch, not particularly, not specifically, and uh, I I don't romp around too much in the you know the the harem stuff either. Mm-hmm. So, the this would be you know deep within it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, are there specific titles that you're uh, curious about? No, I was just wondering, because, I mean, I was curious if you had kind of a philosophy on these series. Basically, what I mean by that is I've watched series of this vein before. I've watched hardcore, you know, well, actually, I should say softcore hentai. Right. Because that's basically what this was. And I've watched series that feature, you know, sibling relationships. I've watched Akisura. I've watched um, Kisses. I've watched uh, Oremo, if you want to count that. But, and basically, my philosophy with this series with series of this vein is that if you're going to do it, go all the way. Don't chicken out and say that the pair are suddenly step-siblings that aren't related (laughs) by blood. Don't tease the relationship only to not do it at the last second. It's go big or go home. And I have to admit that I appreciated that Yoshiga Nosora stuck to its guns and went all the way with it. They they really nailed it. And no pun intended. (laughs) so yeah so i have to admit that i this was the first series i've watched in a very long time where they chose something that was gonna be taboo and they stuck with it i know that the series is from 2010 but yeah it's not a heck of a long time ago yeah In, in the scale of things but uh yeah, no, the, it uh, it definitely, and in the end, it actually, you know, makes you feel that there's something deeper than just, you know, wanting to feed a taboo through it. Mm-hmm. They, they explore it well enough. You got enough basis that uh, Haruka, you know, otherwise would have had normal relationships with these people. But Sora, at no point, of course, was uh, interested in, in anything but. So when you get around to her arc, then it's entirely her perspective, and you do get some of the psychological and the darker stuff in there, but uh, they can actually come to terms at the end. You you get to see some of that lens through the other characters, including ones who he's been with in previous arcs, and you get a reasonable bit of understanding between them. Uh, uh, not with class president, though. The, the one you 
she gets nothing in the anime. I'm not sure if she yeah. gets it in the in the game, but uh, you you get a bit of that, and yeah, that's that was. I'm not sure I would say that's daring for you know anime content. There's plenty of games, there's plenty of media, and there's plenty of anime that goes down the route. But at the very least, it felt like it was done with a little bit more care. And I'm not sure if that's from the source, because I don't know, you know, necessarily how Kiss Sis handle it. Same studio, by the way, that was immediately, the anime immediately prior to No Yusuga nor Sora was Kiss Sis, and the Aki Sora was by the same director. So, just so, just so you know. <laughs> Stu- studio feel has a bit of a type to it. Uh, I mean, they did a, a bunch of Erge stuff from Da Capo and Fortune Aterial, you know, later. But even even then, for a while, you get uh, Corpse Princess and Kisses and Mayochiki. Lately, yeah, I think he watched Lokodal, which is... Yeah, lately, they, they changed up a bit. So they did Galko-chan, the art club has a problem. They did Tsukigakire, which is, you know, a very good... Uh, uh, show and and didn't present a a romance with any kind of pornography or incest in it. Hey, hooray! Hinamatsuri, which was of course great. They're doing uh, they took over for uh, Snafu or Oregairu. That they are currently delayed, which is sad. But uh, but the studio seems to have gone through an early shtick. That was very much down this alley and and stuck with it for a while and then kind of turned to other fare. And I'm not entirely sure if that's because the industry changed around it or like did the options change and no one is making adaptations of those Edo games in uh, quite the same way at this point. Or was it a specific desire from inside the studio of the interesting to know that i haven't uh, looked into it enough of course but uh... yeah so with the last ending it sounds like both of us you know found sora's story arc to be the most interesting if not compelling of all of them uh, i'm curious to know what you thought of the last of how they ended the story arc between haruka and sora basically how it ends is as far as i remember is they you know have their big fight and then change and then and haruka wants them to be split apart he changes his mind they move overseas and they're going to live together and try to keep their relationship going. And I don't know, for me, that felt a little, a little contrived. It seemed like, because for me, it felt like they were going to go a much more realistic route with it. And, you know, and actually do a you know, a sad, heartbreaking ending where they go their separate ways. But then they decided, nope, happy ending. Uh, if you want to call this a happy ending, at least. It's... Uh, so... Sorry, to complete. No, it's fine. Um, so, yeah, it just it felt a little contrived to me, uh, but I'm curious to know what you thought of how they wrapped things up. 
again, I'm not sure about the, uh, from inside the game, but it, it might be that there are multiple ways that that could end as well. Uh, and if you, the perfect ending, you know, is a happy ending and then the slightly imperfect one is an unhappy ending. You, you skip over one of the things in the middle, of course, the last episode is they were discovered. And while Sora doesn't care, Haruka starts descending through like, can't go to school, can't think about it, can't. Uh, uh, approach people he's starting to melt down Uh, Sora just wants them to be together they do get in a fight but then right the whole thing is she leaves uh, a suicide note she's going to go to the uh, mythical lake with the story of uh, I guess you know being reborn through it I forget the precise story of the lake behind the shrine uh, that they go up to so it does. It doesn't feel so much like an ass pull because of the fact that it, the events of Sora possibly committing suicide, drives him past concern for how the world, you know, how how he he thinks about it and how the world will think about them. To simply focusing on caring only about her, he goes to try to stop her. And essentially, they could have both drowned, or one of them could have drowned at that point. But instead, she pulls him out of the water. So in a way, they are both reborn. And it it's the event which causes him to no longer care. So simply leaving and going to a place where no one knows him is the only way for them to be together in a way that society wouldn't tear them down. So... It's not like they're necessarily going to have a happy life, but they do care about each other and want to be with each other. And they have one way to do it, which is to leave everything else behind. So that still works for me well enough. Yes, they they could have done the thing where they both die and then all you get is an epilogue where everyone tuts and shakes their head and thinks about how sad it all was. Uh, but in a way, I think it's more interesting that they are reborn through that at the end and simply value each other and have a chance at possibly succeeding. Who knows if they will? I don't know what their sequel uh, brings out. You know, we're, we're left. We're left at that point and they bookend the opening and the ending. They're on a train ride to somewhere else. So in the beginning, you had a good Pocky scene with... Uh, Sora and Haruka. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, uh, the, the time to Pocky in that show was very low, and it was a good Pocky scene. So I'm I'm generally fine with it because there are only two options at that point: utter tragedy or something hopeful. And it wasn't unearned. Uh, I don't think, uh, e- even if you know the events are, of course, uh, it, it's obviously you know, very contrived to be the thing that can cure his psychological pain or at least get him through it. But I I don't think it's unearned. And I think in the end, considering how goofy a lot of the rest of it is, ending on the happier note, I guess that depends on your perspective, but (laughs) ending on the happier note for them uh, fits with the general course, which 
was that the that I think the presentation of the show was playing against the dark psychological uh, bit. So we got a taste for that at the end, but that wasn't going to be what the what the show was about. So I think it worked as much as anything was going to work. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Uh, did you have any other points? Anything else you wanted to bring up about this series? I don't think so. Uh, I usually chat about some of the voice actors and actresses, but this one seems to have had a whole lot of carryover from the game. So Sora's voice actress was from the game, and everything else she's done has been like an EF and Fortune Arterial and Fruit Eden of Grisaia. So she seems to be very much an Edogay uh, uh, sort of actress. Uh, and that went for a lot of the subcast. Uh, Haruka actually has a number of prominent roles. Interestingly, his first one was uh, Ayato from uh, Razifan, the main character. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty good pull for your first role. And, a, and an amusing side aside for uh, one of our friends who's going through this series right now, and, and also just in general uh, concept, he's Kema Katsuragi from The World God Only Knows. So, hmm. uh, And Connie Springer from Attack on Titan. Not a whole lot of prime roles, but he at least is from the anime world, and it looked like a lot of the others were just from the game world. They just you know pulled them in to do this because they're already already recognizable and i guess they didn't really need to trial sounds good so all right in that case let's go ahead let's move along to our second series which was mal Yu. for those who aren't familiar with it can you give us a quick rundown mal Yu, mal yusha literally demon king and hero Although they, I guess in in English they called it Arch Enemy and Hero. Unfortunately, I watched it on Hulu with ads, so uh, the the ads that didn't help. Really but sucks. Uh, yeah, yeah, should have I should have leached off someone's uh, adless Hulu account. But uh, but whatever. That's what that's why Hurry he invented the mute. Um, <laughs> anyway, this is. Basically, a powered-up Spice and Wolf fan fiction, and I I mean that in the best possible way. Since I just mentioned voice act actors, the Demon King, which is a very buxom uh, queen, effectively, our our Mao is an uh, uh, ample. <laughs> breasted demon king but she, she is has huge tracts of land huge tracts of land um but she's very adorable and uh she and the hero are, are very shy they they have a uh, a wonderful relationship in the beginning he he treads through demon territory to confront the demon king and defeat him with a mighty hero sword and uh, she reveals herself to who she is, which throws him aback. And she basically says that instead of wanting to battle him, instead of wanting to battle the, the human lands, she proposes a, an alliance with the hero specifically, and they would try to effectively change the world through science and technology and economics and 
creating situations where the demon world and humans can coexist and especially because they get right into growing crops and uh talking about economics uh my brain immediately goes to spice and wolf and i already knew that the uh director also was on spice and wolf and out of curiosity i immediately looked at the voice actors i, I did recognize the uh the queen i wouldn't have recognized the hero i don't think but the two main voice actors are hollow and craft lawrence so that's why i mean in every possible way that this is basically a spice and wolf fan fiction side story with high magics and uh you know lots of wacky stuff and it, it's just presented in a a strangely jovial way going through time and battles and uh but still focusing ultimately on you know human value uh, uh what is it economics and science and technology they're using their magic not to fight each other at least the the demon king and the uh hero but things like teleportation magic to transplant crops from one place to another uh, uh, and affect trade from different areas of the world. It, it's a weirdly fascinating approach. And while they, uh, while they do deviate in some ways that seems like they're, they're not quite deciding what they want to be, overall, the, the thrust of it goes goes pretty well so it, it's just kind of fun to to watch and and uh sit through the the basics of it are really getting used to characters and they're all known by titles no one there's not a proper name in this damn entire world you have the <laughs> mao and yusha the the hero you have uh the, the female knight a prominent hero's companion the female knight the female magician the elder lecher I'm not actually sure what he was in a previous life, but he was perverted, so he's a lecher in my book. Uh, <laughs> who would accompany him and become companions or or become plot points later? I know that this was light novel based, so I assume you get a bit more like the the female magician is much less prominent. She comes in pretty much at the end and i'm like oh i wanted to see more the chief maids and sub maids and kings and queens and a whole bunch of nobility the young versions of them who you get to watch grow up and some of the older versions of them who are prominent in in helping the the crimson scholar who is our demon queen uh affect the kind of changes on the world that she wants to and even do a bunch of it on their own because for a number of episodes she's taken out of the action. She's largely driving the plot for a long time and then towards the end of the show she's gone for a while and only gets brought back at the at the very end. But you, you had the back third of the show was the hero and uh, the merchant guild doing their thing. The, <laughs> the big sister maid making a... Uh, Braveheart speech to uh, <laughs> that it inspires a kingdom to eliminate serfdom. It's a it, it's just a weirdly fun ride through a it's a high magic fantasy scape, which doesn't 
entirely square with the you know the fully medieval nature of it a lot more of it i think would have made sense if it was more like the world of of spice and wolf but in in this case uh it's still just a fun romp with a very different focus to it than your than your typical fantasy adventure or fantasy rom-com or whatever you want to uh consider it and we we almost I, I don't know where the books go but we we kind of have a a reasonable poly relationship by the uh by the end of the anime that that is not poorly presented unfortunately you don't know where it's going to go and i'm sure they're never making any more of the uh of the anime which is a shame hey that would have been a good uh have we done that concept yet maybe that'll come up uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the the you get a a good relationship between the female knight and uh and her hero and also between Mao and uh, the the hero, and uh, they like each other. And I'm like, well, this this could be very interesting. We don't we don't get a complete realization. They don't they don't even friggin' kiss by the end of the uh, anime. That that's one bone to pick. Was we did we didn't even get a single kiss by the end. I'm like, damn it, you should end it with something. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was nice. Well, I'm glad that I finally recommended a series to you that you, you know, reasonably enjoyed. It seems like I've been having really bad luck the last couple of I, months. I enjoyed Ass Class. I had, because of what it was, I had specific complaints that, you know, take knock it down a few points for me. I, I enjoyed, uh, what is it, the Black Lagoon quite a lot. So, uh, but this one was a different caliber of it again it's it's not one that you have to invest a lot of seriousness at no point did i really care to start being like well let me look up this economic theory and see if her plan holds water i'm not sure that the plot of uh doing xyz over here it it didn't have things that sometimes take me out and engage the other part of my brain which is trying to square everything together from a uh, plot-centric point. And because it's a world that's kind of high fantasy and kind of comedic, but also pretty serious, it didn't quite hit a a fractured sense that will take me out of it, but it also didn't hit, uh, you know, a, a section where I wanted to overanalyze things. Now, Spice and Wolf, most of that most of the time that was over my head anyway. So even if they were making crap up, I wouldn't have known it. <laughs> but in this case, I was just fine going with the flow and I didn't really have to care all that much. There there were a few specific things that, that came across weird, in, including the episode where uh, we get our, our main speech from the uh, big sis uh, made. Uh, you know, I can... I can forgive it in the long thrust, but it did come across weirdly. There, there were things that were knocking me out of it, and I know it was just uh, everything had to be in service of her big speech. It just there were five levels of this shouldn't have happened that uh, that made it a little a little weird. But uh, again, we were all cheering for the end events of it, so I'm willing to let you know my my niggling sensations about that go i don't know if you're if you want to 
know what that what those actually were i can go into that but it, it's not yeah actually important. go for it because i actually i have to admit that that big speech is one of the reasons why i push this series towards people so much it's so rare in anime where we get these powerful monologues they pop up on occasion but it's very rare that we get this really strong, powerful, long monologue that really serves the character and the plot very well. And I think that this is one of them. So, and that's one of my favorite parts of the entire series. Okay. Well, the speech itself is definitely very good, but the setup was weird. And what I mean by that is uh, by this point in the plot, Mao has gone back to I'm not sure <laughs> she she seemed to approach it as if she needed some extra demon licensing going on. I forget exactly why she had to go home, uh, but she had to go back. She could only enter one place that only the demon lord can enter and commune with all of the previous demon lords that uh, ever existed, I guess, to cement her power structure was what it was ultimately about prove herself but that pulled her out of the plot line for a bit and you had the big the big sister maid who was wearing an illusionary ring uh to look like the crimson scholar so that other people wouldn't know that the crimson scholar was not available uh, so she could continue. She was already learning and studying from Mao, had certain grasp of it, but basically so she could continue with trade deals, so she could talk with people and leave assurances. We get to see a bit more from our young merchant, who uh, in the beginning I think is pretty sleazy, but uh, after the, the scene where he immediately knows uh, he's looking at an illusion and starts going, I like that character quite a lot. So our big sister maid is basically becoming the the Crimson Scholar. Now, in the Central Kingdom, locationally, the, the Scholar and much of the events are happening up in the, the Winter Kingdom that I think somehow is in the South, which always threw me because when you call something winter kingdom i'm thinking it's you know the furthest north but you know uh, part somehow part of the southern kingdoms but who cares uh anywho they they have been excelling they've taken the crimson scholars they've taken her suggestions for how to change crop rotation and the introducing uh potatoes which is increasing the efficiency of how they can how many people they can keep fed and how few people have to be dedicated to the agrarian uh, lifestyle so they can start, you know, supporting more stuff. Uh, but the central kingdoms and specifically the, what, what is it there? Their church. The I what? don't remember the name of it. Off yeah. Of the, the holy light kind of thing. And it, it's uh, it's just described as as some kind of hi, I'm a church, uh, concept. Of course, all of these things that you know, it's the Winter King and then the White Knight King and the uh, One-Eyed Commander. Everyone has their uh, uh, you know, description names. 
but the central kingdoms uh, declare the Crimson Scholar and her teachings heretical. So uh, by that point, both Mao and uh, Yusha do not, they don't want to see wars happening and taking place. So because the Crimson Scholar is declared a heretic, it's actually up to the the Winter King to take her by force or uh, willingly as a prisoner and basically ship her off to the Central Kingdoms where she will be judged and one assumes have a nice pile of burning wood placed under her or whatever they do to witches in this particular world. And so it was considered, you know, to, it was considered like a, a potential duty for the big sister maid to effectively keep pretending to be the Crimson Scholar and be taken prisoner and be taken out of the land into the Central Kingdoms and, uh, and, and possibly sacrificed for the greater good of preventing war at that point. And uh, the hero said, don't, don't worry about it. Once you get over the border and out of the Winter Kingdom, I'll simply rescue you and go my own way and, and be with you that way. It won't look like it's the Winter King's fault. Uh, the the hero has gone rogue, and that's fine. He'll fi- he'll figure something out later. So that was their plan, and you see it. She's taken under quote unquote, as quote unquote prisoner by the Winter King, and there's a uh, emissary from the Central Kingdom, and they have a cart. They even show the cage cart, and the only reason for a cage cart is to parade her through the lands as they're taking her to wherever they're going to take her. Again, the whole assumption is up to the central kingdoms. But when they're there, you know, the, he's a crowd has gathered. Uh, the people of the Winter uh, Kingdom, like the, uh, the Crimson Scholar, don't want to see uh, anything happen to her. They don't consider potatoes heretical. But of course, everyone is fairly loyal to the church and... Uh, and at the very least, in, in, afraid of war and what would happen if they reject this. Uh, but they've already stacked up rocks there to stone her to death, uh, apparently. <laughs> uh, there seemed to be no plan to actually take her away. The hero is waiting, but he was waiting to follow their retinue, and he doesn't step in at any point, even when rocks. Uh, or, or even when she is getting smacked around, uh, the emissary and his soldiers are basically going to execute her and then say any last words, and then they permit her to speak this passionate five-minute speech <laughs> about things. I'm like, no, why don't you know? Any last words is usually a very short thing. Why don't they punch her and get her to stop? They can see her swaying the crowd. Everything that she says is against what they want to see happen. So they permit this whole passionate speech. At no point do they try to step in, because, of course, if they had, then the Winter King and the female knight and the hero would have themselves had to step in and end the situation at that point, or at least subdue the emissary and the uh, uh, soldiers, and then uh, she would have had to keep saying her speech at that point the speech itself is good but the circumstance was like well she was just going to hit the road with them and then they're like no let's stone her to death oh you're not going to stone her to death i'll just hack her head off with my sword here 
uh, but say this passionate speech to rouse <laughs> to, <laughs> to rouse the angry mob that didn't want to stone her to death against us <laughs> with your fiery passion. And then when uh, you know they're ultimately uh, stopped, and yes, war would be declared. The, the hero also doesn't step in to try to do his own thing at any point. He could have at any point just stepped in and said, well, I'm going to save her now and smack the Winter King aside. He wanted to make it so that war wouldn't happen, but he doesn't act so that war doesn't happen. Uh, they were going to take her up north, and yet in the next scene, they're going to stone her to death right there and kill her right there and not parade her through the land. So the speech is good, but all of the setup that they did was weirdly contradicted in the very next scenes, along with uh, the hero's plans and him being the most powerful person who can wipe out armies on his own, could have done whatever he wanted at that point. So it was weird to lay that in the middle. The, the, the groundwork was not correct. So that took me out of how it happened. But I, of course, enjoyed that it happened and the after effects of it. They just didn't set it up right because the as I went through, to, to me, everything that they had would have made it so that speech wouldn't have taken place. So uh, it was a little weird from that standpoint. But it was a good speech. <laughs> so what did you think of the different tones of the series? Because basically what I mean by that is this series, I thought it did it rather well, but it tended to fluctuate between serious drama, serious technological advancements and agricultural and all these things. <laughs> to silly comedy with the demon king revealing that she has her own hero Daki Makara <laughs> which well that was I, episode 1 uh you get a replay later so uh you're you're still that's not quite breaking it cuz that's establishment and i think that helped uh in some ways the whole initial setup of it was enough on the record scratch so i bet you're wondering why the uh how i got here right now thing because you have the whole demon lord hero conflict and then uh he comes to slay her and then she wants to marry him and change the world and uh she had <laughs> to even be able to talk with him normally she had to practice hugging and kissing a dakimakara with his uh image on it and amusingly, later we get to see that, you know, she is old. She's watched him while he was growing up as well. So there is a uh, there there's a, a secondary weird element to the relationship uh, that develops between the two of them. But because it was askew enough from the beginning. Again, it it wasn't tonally fractured enough that it would take me out of it, which definitely happens in a lot of shows where it just feels like the show can't decide what it wants to be. It felt more like a uh, that there was a lighthearted attitude and kind of a meandering approach to things that they're immediately going into, you know, talking about crop rotations and going, ah, boo, and uh, 
you know, some noble in the area doesn't like her thing. And she's like, okay, well, we apparently we have to change education over here first before we can sell them on XYZ. And uh, they're just sort of living in an area and you'd skip three months at a time, six months at a time. So there's a, a loose enough attachment to a lot of things that are going on that when you get the set piece conflicts and some more serious stuff, you're you're seeing those as, as set pieces on the uh, structure that was already set up with with a bit of that lighthearted approach to it. So it it feels like you know occasionally they have to get serious. Both of them are immensely powerful people, but you don't see them using it most of the time. You effectively later on you get to see the hero pull a nuclear explosion out of his ass <laughs> to blow up a gate. And you're like, oh, okay. So they weren't making things up when they, when they would basically say, well, you can just, if the if the central kingdom attacks, you could just wipe out their army. And I was like, yeah, but we don't want to do that. So there's such a light touch to a lot of the serious elements that they're talking about because they're trying to prevent people dying and prevent conflict while basically saying they could affect it viciously. And occasionally, you know, we do see that happen. It's usually between side players on the human side in the demon world, but we're seeing it from the outsider's perspective. We're seeing the kind of world that they want to change. So when it dips serious, when it dips more bloody and more action-filled, we're seeing, you know, the we're seeing the hill that they're trying to traverse over to see the better world beyond that hill. So in a way it feeds into that goal that they established from the beginning, which is a noble and inspiring vision that our titular Lord of the demon realm uh, brings, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't want to just keep fighting and, you know, and all of them will just keep blowing each other up uh, forever. But, to stop war, they have to change the way that everyone's kingdoms is built around uh, the economics of war. So we have to approach it from the right direction. So it's it's interesting to see the outside. You get the dichotomy kind of comes from the outside world and their inside plans fighting against each other. And because we like the two characters, the inside world can be a bit more comedic and generally warm and kind of goofy and occasionally lecherous and uh, oftentimes with her breast bouncing at unexplainable uh, angles. <laughs> that I could have done without. We're already getting the fan service, but occasionally the studio just went all dead or alive uh, gravity effects on her boobs. And I'm like, ah, she's just <laughs> walking down. She's walking down a corridor here. Like, come on, do a Gynax bounce here and there where appropriate. Uh, <laughs> try to keep it under control when she's just walking down the street. So, right, you, you also get a bit of, you know, eye candy, but also the the kind of goofy rom-comness where nothing ever happens as well. But uh, it, it, it's, it's again, it's done pleasantly enough to be nice rather than 
tropey enough to be, you know, I've I've seen this too many times before. It helps that the that the female knight is a uh, is a good counterbalance uh, to it as well. Like I said, you we could have an actual nice poly relationship by the end of uh, the story. However, it ends up uh, between them, but uh, but it, it's. It's not done, you know, slapstick wise where uh, in, in your normal harem fashion where where there is one main that's going to happen and everyone else is kind of there for hijinks. You get some meaningful stuff from her. It doesn't uh, hurt at all that that's my favorite voice actress, Miyuki Sawashiro. Uh, that made me a, a big female night fan. <laughs> also, that scene where they were fighting and then... She was at the water pump and uh, wearing the towel. I'm like, okay, there's some... Again, the fan service is usually just the design of Mao specifically because of her overwhelmingly cute but busty nature. But uh, occasional uh, bits from the female knight. She was a, a, you know, a small-boobed punchline by the elder Letcher for... Uh, for much of the time, but you get a number of, of times where you're like, wow, okay, that's nice. Thank, thanks, guys. <laughs> so you brought up the relationship a little bit more, and I do agree with you, by the way, that the fact that they didn't even kiss by the end of the series is more than a little frustrating. <laughs> Uh, but overall, what did you think of the relationship dynamic, uh, between the female knight, Mal, and the hero? Because that's another really important part about the series that I really like, is that they did have that kind of view relationship of mutual respect, and they were basically sharing the hero as best as they could, mm -hmm. uh, just to give you a little bit of a heads up, I actually learned that the implication at the end of the light novel is that the three of them go off together to live together in a quiet little castle. So there is a happy ending for them eventually. Excellent. They they get a happy... Now does uh, Chief Maid go with them? And the I, other don't know about, I don't know about Chief Maid. Because Chief Maid is, is fucking great. So... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and she seemed to be like the mother to all three of them as they were busy trying to steal time and, and spend time with a hero <laughs> shared a bed with him. They're, they're both talking to each other and complimenting his hair and stroking their hands. Fucking hilarious. I, I like that. He basically is saying nothing during, during that. I'm like, I'm still here, you know, but they're talking about, uh, you know, being a, a little bit about what, you know, what they have to do, but a little bit about just, right, again, respecting and, and liking each other and being, uh, you know, friends and the inspiration. The, fe the female knight is uh, also effectively uh, a prioress at, uh, uh, of eventually, by the end of the anime, her, her own... Uh, religious order. I don't know what their uh, dictates are about that kind of relationship, but it would also be nice to to know if she stays that at the end, and you get you know like a, a religion that isn't uh, 
preaching uh, fire and brimstone about that kind of stuff. So, uh, so yeah, no, I, I, I like it overall. You, you get not as much with all three of them together outside of one or two setup scenes. And then that uh, bedroom scene in, in the main episode, because a lot of times, of course it was before uh, Yusha met, met Mao and then later when she's off on her own and we're seeing more from just the uh, female knight's perspective uh, and in the beginning of course they don't know who each other are they're just trying to uh, or rather the female knight doesn't know who Mao is they're just trying to gain the uh, the help of her and the lakeside convent for spreading potato lore Around the, <laughs> around the kingdom. They're like, well, to solve the education problem, because it's not conventional schooling, make more convents. And in the convents, while you're helping the people, you get to teach them about the advantages of this, you know, rotate uh, crop rotation and introducing the new, uh, the new stuff. So you get to educate through the religious proxy and bypassing the, the lords and uh, distrust of this, you know, one person. And then, of course, people like the Crimson Scholar after her teachings are shown to uh, 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 to be very effective. You don't get a whole lot between the three of them. That's uh, one reason why we we need more. And I'm I'm not sure how many. Do you know how many of the light novels the uh, anime covers? Uh, I am not sure. Anime. It was after all of them were done, so it, it could have been up to all of them, but uh, I guess three or four, that, that feels right for a... Yeah, I think so. So yeah, it would. It, I, I would definitely like to know what's on the, the other side of the hill. I'm, I'm glad if we're never going to get it in anime form that, uh, that, we, that they do have a, a happy-go-lucky at the end, even if uh, they might have the the chief maid trying to keep them from getting, you know, too many hijinks going. Although I guess she was being more, uh, uh, you know, she was just making sure that it worked out equally. In a way, she was probably encouraging. <laughs> that's, that's perfectly fine. It, it was it was represented in a way that was nice generally, even even if the hero. And the uh, uh, what is it? The uh, Mao were too innocent and uh, uh, embarrassed by half to uh, to have anything happen. That that's why I wanted there to be something at the end, so that we feel like they grew past their embarrassment stages. That they shared a dance, and that's as much uh, skin sharing as they they did for the entire uh, thing. She. Uh, she ran her. Uh, she she hugged a Dakimakura more than uh, more than our main more than our poor main character. So, did you have any other parts that particularly stood out to you as particularly good, particularly bad? Anything else that you really wanted to highlight? Trying to remember, I think one of the weirder things was. It, it didn't come across right because you you had uh what is it like this blue skinned guy who seemed like he was gonna be a a big bad you had your 
one-eyed commander. You had these occasional people who were wanting to uh, swear vengeance against their plots and plans at uh, starting the wars they want or or other stuff not uh, not happening, not coming to fruition. It, it seemed a little bit scattered from there, especially because uh, it's like, well, I think probably their major in the novels we're not going to get to so it seemed weird to plant them here you could if you ever made more you could probably introduce them at that point and sometimes because of the generic nature of people it was a bit hard to follow who was who when the humans were invading each other and uh and stuff but uh generally speaking it was uh it was good to go through but uh not all of it hooked uh seamlessly and they kind of varied between okay here's here's this other thing over here and i'm like why are they attacking i don't really know who are they allied with i don't really know but the female magician just teleported all of them somewhere all right (laughs) (laughs) that that was a pretty hilarious scene because we haven't seen her in forever but she's been the female magician has been journeying around the demon realm and then uh, before Mao locked herself up in the room, met her, and then she went back to uh, to go meet up with the hero, and they kind of meet, and then the first thing that she does is uh, cast immensely powerful, crazy magics while being basically very mad that she hasn't been able to do anything uh, meaningful the rest of the time. <laughs> and then he blows up the gate with a nuclear warhead. Uh, so you just have these enormous magics at one point and you're like, oh, well, there wasn't a particular scene. I don't think that I liked with the, uh, with that merchant, the, the young merchant, the, uh, our primary one, but I, I just liked how he sort of picked on things. You, you would get these scenes where it would split between the plans that they were talking about and wanting to make and him interpreting them correctly and then joining in and being like, well, this is how it's being set up. Let me go do this. And uh, he ha- he adds his own things that the <clears throat> main cast, you know, didn't have in mind, but it's like, oh, okay, that's, that's interesting. He's, he's, their purpose is still to defray the power of the central kingdom and the main church. And he, assist in that in a way that only the merchants guild can uh economically and i'm like it was interesting to see effectively the the a war that only had one battle but was basically decided through i don't want to say diplomacy but basically through changes made to the structure of the winter kingdom so when they get rid of serfdom they start bringing in people and and again they're like they split off from the church so they start their own one which does not decry the crimson scholar or her learnings and then economically the merchants guild does their own thing to uh hurt the power of the nobility and the central kingdoms and basically weaken them to the point that they can stop the war by nature of them being on hit on three fronts simultaneously uh, and just kind of giving up because they can no longer fund it. They 
they no longer have as much numerical advantage because people are leaving to uh, to go there. Uh, and of course, you, you still have these ridiculously powerful magical people who haven't even been interfering in the war yet. The only, like you have the female knight leading a battle earlier on, and they're using tricksy things to to uh, drive the demons out of one area. They're not, uh, again, you know, she's not doing a whole bunch of powerful stuff. She gets to, to fight a, a demon sub-boss and have some fun but they're not they're not pulling out fantasy nukes to uh change <laughs> everything else around the way the way that they're changed is usually through uh intelligence and tactics and in this way uh and in the case of the the later stuff economically and uh politically so it's uh it, it's an interesting ride through even if some of the bits in the middle of it come across a bit disjointed it's because they're presenting so many perspectives at the at the same time and they don't have a huge runtime so they can't devote as much as they probably normally should to to get done with it it's the kind of thing i wonder if they should have done the whole thing all at once and just if they had two cores to do it they could have uh, paced everything better I'm not sure. So, all right. Uh, if you don't have anything else that you wanted to bring up, I think that about wraps things up for this time around. I do a little bit. I wanted to, uh, you know, do the normal, just sort of studio analysis. Uh, again, we we mentioned the uh, the director before. I don't know mm-hmm. how much you want to chat about him uh, specifically, but he did prior to Spice and Wolf. He did Aki Sora. He he went kind of from Spice and Wolf to Yosuga no Sora, uh, to Mario, <laughs> <laughs> Roka Hinaka no. He does uh, he does Citrus later. Then that was a recent show, and that one it comes across as a bit of uh, you know a, a reasonable bit smutty as well. Wasteful Days of High School Girls. It, it's one of those things that the studio that did Yosuga no Sora seemed to have a shtick and then kind of updated later to doing other works. But sometimes it feels like directors can obviously have their own shtick if, they, if they're known for one thing in particular. Uh, and a lot of times their different projects are simply because it, they're popular enough or have enough pull that they can call their own shots and they do something that is meaningful to them and maybe has a uh, a much different feel or is challenging to them. But, you know, I, I had never heard of Takeo Takahashi before. I only would be familiar with his reputation largely through Spice and Wolf in this case, which, I don't know, it doesn't come across as a direct driven show I'd have to watch it again and keep an eye more on you know cuts and cinematics it's obviously well presented and obviously well enjoyable but I think that's largely from the source material and from character design and, and action I'm not entirely sure how much credit to give the director in that case I know obviously they have a a lot of pull on the whole project. And I guess you could say Yosuga Norsora for what it was, was directed well enough. 
but it ju- it just feels weird to see you know a lot of directors go kind of ping ponging through you know here here's this uh you know modern classic for much of the uh anime community and then they just do you know this weirdly uh uh <laughs> smuddyero gay and then they they do a a fun fantasy thing uh, and then they do another serious fantasy thing, and then they do another smutty thing, and I'm like, the 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 process of it, it, it's just a little weird. I don't know how they get attached. Who who chooses? Why are they chosen? Because they don't always have a you know a a studio relationship to work with either. So it it it, it comes across weird just looking at the track record of of certain directors especially ones that i i don't have a particular relationship with going in and uh of course a lot of them i follow through if if you're looking at kiwani or shaft or uh, pa works there are a lot of directors who are commonly working with them so they have a studio relationship and of course the studio itself has their own kind of thing much of the time and you can see why they were pulled in but out in the wide field even for people who have prominent popular i guess i don't know how much spice and wolf actually sold at the time Uh, and then both you know the studio that can be a part of it and also the director that can do it just has a, a a bunch of random and sometimes complete schlock in in the middle of uh you know classics (laughs) <laughs> it it, uh, it 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 kind of mystifies me sometimes just reading through the uh, the works that they're uh, that they're involved in. I don't know if you you've looked at him specifically to to pull it in or or get that feel from others that we've uh, that we've uh, you know been covering in uh, expanding horizons so far. Uh, I haven't paid attention to this particular director as much uh one thing that you mentioned with history i took a quick look at the studio behind uh mal Yu and it's i oh, man yeah <laughs> they have quite a history behind them studio what are they arms yeah uh, originally known as uh, dandelion and triple x back in those days yeah uh, no even more than studio feel which did some eroge stuff straight up hentai from 1992 to like 2005 la blue girl (laughs) one of the most infamous hentai to ever come out when they were known as dandelion so La la blue girl pia carrot immoral sisters Kite. Uh, okay. They. Well, no wonder that. That's why they do wizard barristers again. They have a connection to that character designer. But uh, so yeah, no, just straight up hentai. Oh, they do Midnight Panther. They <laughs> a lot of these things. And even when they sort of rebrand, I guess as Arms, they're still doing stuff like Elfin Lead, uh, Ikitosen, Queen's Blade. <laughs> They still haven't tread too far off. They just aren't straight up hentai, but you're seeing, uh, you know, much of it represented. 
but then uh yeah weirdly genshiken uh they they do genshiken part two mm. <laughs> in the middle of ikitosens uh but then maoyu is in there and then they kind of go right back so maoyu is like the least etchy of <laughs> almost <laughs> anything that they've ever done because uh, they do Brunhilde in the Darkness. They, oh, I guess, Wizard Barristers isn't very etchy. It just uh, with the with the kites uh, character designer uh, Umetsu. So uh, mm-hmm. more more of that shtick. Isaka Valkyrie Drive, where you know lesbians merge to become weapons to fight other lesbians who merge to become weapons. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. I believe I'm so. Remembering that correctly. Yeah. Excellent. A the highest of quality of series. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, exactly. This particular studio, it, it's hilarious to look at their entire uh run. And Maoyu is somehow so I can understand why Mao's boobs occasionally do very booby things in the middle of nowhere. Because uh, other than Genshiken Part Two, all of their stuff <laughs> has uh, a lot of naked, a lot of boobs, a lot of uh, a lot Bouncing of bouncing and jiggling. Good lord, yes. So uh, it's kind of hilarious. Uh, now I did mention also someone uh, i mentioned one of the other side voice cast uh which was miyuki sawashiro uh do you have we talked about her before i don't remember i don't think we have i mean my my closest connection is she's serica from space brothers so of of course i have a close personal connection through my favorite uh uh anime um uh, she also does, uh, I, I love this, she does uh, Young Muta in it, which is fine. Uh, oftentimes, females say you are doing young boys, but she also does the voice acting for Oppo, the pug. So <laughs> when you hear Oppo snuffling, that is uh, Miyuki Sawashio. Uh, but she's Kambaru from the Monogatari series, uh, Kelty from Dudarara. Uh, she's some of the latter Fujigomines. She's Har- Haruka, the main character from uh, Uta Yano from uh, uh, Kimi ni Todoke. So uh, she's she's a lot of parts, but I I specifically enjoy. She's got a depth of tonality that is very is very resonant in my ears, uh, but doesn't come across uh, like certain other uh, ones where it's hitting the sultry end of things. She just comes across as kind of serious. Uh, Weirdly, I don't, I kind of don't want to use it, but it kind of comes across as Shakespearean a lot of times, which is sort of (laughs) weird, but she seems to have kind of a, not a a treble tonality to it, but a but a uh, a higher kind of uh, sonorousness to it that uh, that I just uh, is very pleasing to mine ears. Um, 
trying to think. But the uh, the others that I, I found interesting were the Chief Maid and the Young Merchant. Uh, the Chief Maid is uh, Chiwa Saito, best known as Senjigahara from uh, uh, Monogatari. And uh, the Young Merchant is Hiroshi Kamiya, who is all over the place and damn near everything, but he's Koyomi from Monogatari. Also, uh, Yato from Noragami, Levi from uh, Attack on Titan, uh, uh, Kakushi Goto from the series currently running, Kakushi Goto, which was the smartest casting they could make for that character. <laughs> so I, I enjoy having these nice little uh, uh, pairs and parallels when uh, when we're doing these. That's that's part of the reason why I like looking through the whole cast is just to find these connections and also to uh, to series that we've watched already. The the Letcher uh, was in two of them. He was the mafia boss in Black Lagoon, and he was a, a random general in Escaflone. He hasn't been in a lot of prominent roles at least lately, but. Uh, but I, I enjoy seeing series that we've already covered in the uh, part list when I'm looking at stuff. We did, by the way, talked about uh, Jun Fukuyama, Craft uh, Lawrence, our hero character. We talked about mm-hmm. him at one other point because that is Koro-sensei. And so I, I'm starting to enjoy this guy a bit more uh, because him being able to cover, like, crazy characters like Koro-sensei, uh, straight-up disturbing ones like Kamari from Yamushi Petal, uh, uh, Shinra from Dudadada, but Kraft Lawrence and Lelouch. He has a wide range, and he doesn't have a specific tone of voice that makes me always recognize him no matter what he's in, which happens with a lot of people, like Hiroshi Kamiya, who we uh, uh, just talked about, Kiyomi and uh, the young merchant. So I find it, I find his range uh, pretty, pretty interesting in general. I don't think there is anything to talk about. You know, the opening and ending were pleasant, but I I think I like the ending a lot more because it was, it it was interesting and it was a a good way to leave the episode generally, but uh, none of them hit, you know, truly high marks and in memorability and I did not always watch them, which is my caliber of a strong op uh, opening or ending is I can't actually skip it. So we we haven't yet covered a series that I have not skipped. I think I even skipped Escaflones. That's definitely the best opening uh, that we've had, but I've heard it so many times, and I was powering through the episodes that I skipped it just to keep moving. It's one in a normal circumstance I probably wouldn't skip, but so far I think that's the only one. We'll, uh, we'll have to compile. At a certain <laughs> point, we, ne- we need to do a filler episode that's just us talking about all our prior episodes and anything that we that we wanted to bring up again, or just analyzing them from a different direction. Like, let's talk about all of the openings and endings from all of the series, with, you know, when we're out of ideas. When we've yeah. done all of the anime that we haven't watched... All the anime. <laughs> I'm sure that'll be very, very soon. <laughs> Did you have anything else that you wanted to bring up before I, we wrap things up? I think we are at wrap things up level. 
Okay, well then, let's go ahead, let's call that good for tonight. Thank you, CT, for joining me for another fascinating discussion. You are welcome for being joined by me. And thank you all out there for listening. Remember that if you want to hear these podcasts as soon as possible, the first place they go up is my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash review. Also, please remember to like, share, and subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be back again next month with two more series for Expanding Horizons. So until then, take care and have a great night. Stay healthy, folks.